Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barbara Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 65 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. It's only been a couple of days since I recorded last week's episode, and I have to be honest, talking about sexual abuse brings a lot of the horrifying feelings back. And although I'm a 59-year-old woman, you know, almost 50 years out of the last time I was abused, it's still a hugely, deeply rooted piece of my being and who I am and how I function and how I think. And lots of things have come to mind for me. And while sexual abuse and, and sexual assault can be really difficult to talk about, there are lots of, of other things in life that sort of mimic what happens in your mindset and how certain behaviors are compulsive and very difficult to change. We have a very, very large refugee population in Concord. And years and years ago, when, when refugees from all sorts of countries, Middle Eastern countries and Far Eastern countries and African countries and Eastern European countries started coming here, and with them, of course, come all their baggage. <laughs> what they don't have in actual physical bags, they have in their emotional bags. In teaching health, I taught about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And it's a triangle. The base of the triangle are our physical needs, physical in the sense of food, air, water, safety, just basic physical survival. And those are basic needs. If you were plopped down in the middle of the woods, you wouldn't worry what your hair looked like. You'd worry about where you were going to hide out all night long so the bears would meet you. And then you'd worry about eating and water and all of that. So this plays a huge role in how children who then become adults deal with and focus on traumatic events and how to manage them if they're continuing or get beyond them if it was a one-time thing. There was a student that ran for Concord High School and this person had survived as an eight-year-old in the jungle horrifyingly dangerous country. And he had had to eat things like bugs and, and leaves and twigs and you know, snakes and things that were gross that we would never think of eating. But that's what you did to survive. And he, he understood you could die at any moment. And he came to America and he came to Concord and was taken care of by a number of families here. And there was a period of time where he was with a family and they were struggling because he was hiding food. He would hide food in his room, under the mattress, between the mattress and the box ring and under the bed and in the closet and in shoe boxes. And the problem was he would hide all manner of food, lettuce, bananas, things that would rot. And so the room would smell and then there would be maggots and bugs. And no matter what the family did around this, he couldn't stop the behavior. Now, it might seem illogical, right? You're in this beautiful home. There is a kitchen full of food or a refrigerator full of food. But because of the amount of time as a young child he had spent absolutely not knowing where his next insect was coming from. The compulsion to store food when you had it was unfixable at that moment for him. It was something that with all the other stresses of learning English and going to school and running fast and all of this, he had a hard time with and he would just hoard the food. 
I was asked what I thought. And, you know, as a coach of female distance runners, food can be a very, very, <laughs> more than just nourishing your body, anorexia and bulimia. You know, this was the opposite side, worrying that there wouldn't be food, not wishing there wasn't. So my suggestion had been allow him to have food in his room that he could lock, put a mini fridge in there and let him fill it with food and give him a lock so that no one but him could have access. We had wonderful conversations with him. And I don't know the details of how this was resolved. Another suggestion I had was allow him to hoard food that doesn't go bad, you know, like buy him a case of protein bars and let, let him keep them in his room. Just ways that he could feel he had control over the food because it didn't matter that the fridge in the household wasn't locked and that he could go in there and help himself anytime. That wasn't enough to feed the underlying fear that the food would run out. I use this analogy because it's easier to understand. We don't judge people who were starved in, you know, lived in the woods and starved as children. But when people are sexually abused, we put a lot of pressure on the victim to carry the burden of the abuse. It becomes something that happens between two people, even though <laughs> there's no equality or equity in that interaction. There's a perpetrator and a victim. When people are beaten, children are beaten and have horrible physical abuse, their reactions to physical violence can be profound. There's a little bit less violence there as well. Nobody thinks it's okay to beat the crap out of a child. But again, sexual abuse carries this whole different mindset around it. And there is huge pressure on the, on the victim to carry the secret and to own the steps that are taken once the abuse is revealed. You know, I've been feeling uncomfortable in my skin. I've been feeling angry at the adults in my life, some of whom are still alive and some of whom are not. I have, you know, pictures of myself around the house as a child. And when I look at one and I think of how old I was, I get sad and I cry. It's been really difficult. And I'm trying to record several episodes at once for two reasons. One, you know, to, to get ahead of it a little bit, but also so I can move on to other things. All of my podcasts, all of these episodes and going through every moment of my time here on earth so far has been to try to make sense of Molly's death. That remains my driving force. I know that I'll probably never make sense of it on many levels, but retracing the steps of my life has been unbelievably eye-opening. Just starting off in a pretty tender place because I'm feeling, you know, stuck in that physical safety. So where does Maslow hit for me? You know, we can look at physical safety as being eaten by a bear or starving to death or held underwater. And those are like life or death physical safety. My physical safety wasn't life or death for me. It wasn't even painful. It was humiliating and it was wrong and it was confusing and it was terrifying. And when I knew it was coming and I knew that there was nothing I could do about it, there was a sense of resignation that I don't know that anyone would understand unless they'd been in that situation where you know what's going to happen is going to happen. Imagine people who are being murdered and it sounds awful, but somebody that's been abducted and is going to be murdered, there comes a time when they know this is it. You know, maybe they fight till the very end. Maybe there's some sort of acceptance and resignation that this is it. I don't know, but I do know that in the moments that I knew it was going to happen and I felt completely unable to control it, that was some of the worst feelings I've ever felt. And when I looked at Maslow and its hierarchy of needs, I was very much stuck in that bottom part. The next part of the triangle is like emotional needs, you know, feeling good about yourself and feeling secure in your relationship and knowing that you fit in and have people love you. I get very stuck there. And I think that's why I have a tendency to trauma bond. Next would come beauty. So Maslow's next step for humans in terms of finding happiness is being able to experience beauty, listening to music, 
painting and drawing, going to museum, finding things that make you feel good and doing them. And then the top one is self-actualization, where you really just know who you are and feel good about that. And the number of people that function in true self-actualization, I think is probably very small. But all of us on some level have something in our lives that have happened to us that keep us in one place. In my self-analysis, and I look at the relationships I've gotten into, I look at all the things that led up to Molly's death the years prior to that. I look at the chunks of my life where things were going okay and, and how did I end up back in the middle of horrifyingly bad things happening. In true abuse fashion, I own parts of it that are not mine to own. And that's been freeing to really sort of let go of what I don't own. In this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about something called generational trauma and intergenerational trauma. And there are lots and lots of tie-ins here. I've spoken a lot about mental health becoming much more brain-oriented now and how we have to stop looking at mental health as a series of behaviors that people can just try and control better. We don't ask asthmatics to control their wheezing. We don't ask cancer patients to control their tumors. We ask mental health sufferers to control their sadness, to control their anger. We ask of our sickest people sometimes <laughs> the impossible task of controlling something that originates in the brain. It really is neurological in function. This information, the brain connection was especially, especially helpful for me in dealing with Molly's death. My therapist talked to me about neurological transmitters and the, the conversation back and forth between mother and child while the child was growing in the belly and all through that child's life and how elimination of one or the other, elimination of the mother or the child doesn't quiet down those neurotransmitters for a long time. The nerve pathways continue and they they exacerbate and get angry and cranky because they're not being responded to. The very physical explanation of a very emotional and behavior-filled response to Molly's death into, into that trauma. A lot of other work now done as well. When you look at reproduction and babies growing in the bellies of their mothers, there are lots of ways to look at what happens to these babies. But the bottom line is, for nine months, the being inside the mother shares blood flow, shares heart rate, shares genetics, back and forth, back and forth, all along, there is sort of one person sharing DNA, sharing blood flow. So even babies that are born to surrogates, a mother carrying the egg and sperm of someone else or someone else, that baby inside that mother still gets nine months of that human being's DNA, blood flow, moods, anxieties, happinesses and sadnesses. All of this is transmitted to the baby. And there used to be a lot of, you know, back and forth on this. Oh, that's hogwash. But when you think about it, it can't be hogwash because one body is growing another. And so for nine months, those two bodies are linked. And looking at what we inherit, nature versus nurture, lots and lots of studies done on twins that are separated at birth and adopted by different people. And when they reunite as adults, many things in their lives are different. There was a, a study, one twin was raised in a Jewish family and one in a Catholic family how different their lifestyles and upbringings were, but how many similarities they had. And it really evidenced that we get a lot from who we're with, but we also get a lot from where we grew, who grew us, the DNA. And in looking at things like trauma, what else do we inherit from our families? Generational and intergenerational trauma has been looked at. So just like the Vietnam War was the first time in World War II in Korea, I, I think, looking at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, really should just be post-traumatic stress and how veterans that came back from horrifying war experiences suffered. Generational trauma and intergenerational trauma has first been looked at 
children of the Holocaust. So Jewish people in Europe during World War II who are survivors of the Holocaust, they're now free. They can relocate and get married and have children and their children and their children's children, evidencing signs of trauma, even though in their life there hadn't been the trauma. The American Academy of Psychiatrics started looking at, so what's going on here? Is it just that the children are overhearing conversations? Are the parents that survived the Holocaust acting out in strange ways that affect the children and traumatize them? Or is there some intrinsic traumatic response inside of them that they developed while they were growing in the mother? This is fairly intense information to process because when you think about all that people go through and all that we strive generation to generation to better ourselves at, it's not uneasy to believe this. Of course, piqued my curiosity because I always felt early on that my job was to make everybody happy, to be a people pleaser. I always had a big mouth and said what I thought, and I often got in trouble for it. And it was reinforced to me that I should just be quiet. So the first thing that you learn about, about generational trauma is that we all have ways that we responded to trauma. There's fight or flight or freeze. These were mentioned in The Body Keeps the Score as well. So what do you do in trauma? You fight back. I talked about a relative of mine, my younger sister, who had woken up to somebody beginning the process of abusing her, and she fought back. Stop it. There's flight. A couple of times, finally, in my own abuse history story, I was able to get up out of bed and lock myself in the bathroom. I fled the scene. And then freeze. And a lot of people just freeze. They stop. They stay perfectly still. They wait for it to end. And then these behaviors can continue after the trauma is over with. So I have evidenced freeze behavior and flight behavior all of my life. I've moved from place to place. I've jumped from friends to friends and relationships to relationships. And I've acquiesced to and said yes to people and relationships and favors and tasks that I know in my logical mind I should say no, but I can't. I just freeze. I allow things to happen. Can't wrap my head around it now. Before I get into the generational trauma facts here that I've researched, I want to talk about my family for a minute. I talk about my early childhood and how I had a very baby boomer-esque sort of first five or six years, the full-time working dad, the stay-at-home mom, eating dinner, finishing everything on your plate and, and making your bed and all of the roles that we were supposed to follow. And what I did also remember and remember now as I really look back is how much my brother and my father didn't have to do around the house. Yes, they mowed the lawn and they did these outdoor tasks that happened. But day-to-day, everyday tasks fell upon my mother. Now, my father was working 40 hours a week. So part of me understands that. You divide and conquer. You decide whose tasks belong to whom. And then whatever ones are left over, you divide as you see fit. So there was a lot of that in my house. But I didn't understand why my brother would now be also allowed to not do anything. I can remember as I got older, you know, he would leave dirty dishes in the sink and I wouldn't, it wouldn't dawn on me to leave dirty dishes in the sink. I always wash it, put it in the dish tray because that's what my mother did. I can remember at night, I'd be in the living room maybe with Jonathan and Johanna when they were little and my brother and my father are watching TV and my mother's sweeping and mopping the kitchen floor and finishing cleaning the kitchen. And then she's the one that puts the babies to bed and puts us to bed. And my brother and my dad just watch TV. I'm sorry if I'm picking on them, but that's a powerful message. That's a message right there. that on some level, women are subservient and should be waiting on men. That's how it felt to me. I am very happy for any, any male listeners to disagree with me, but it, it just felt that way. In looking at laws of our country back then, 
when I was five years old, my mother couldn't get a credit card. She could be a name on my father's credit card, but she couldn't get one on her own. It wasn't illegal until the mid-80s for a man to rape his wife. So that's a very strong message there that certain people have a voice and certain people don't. These behaviors and beliefs promote intergenerational trauma. When you look at some of the populations that suffer the most from this type of trauma are marginalized populations. So people that are living in poverty, minority populations that are treated poorly. You look at populations that have had horrible things happen to them. And the trauma evidences itself generation to generation. I taught at a charter school with a woman with brown skin, and she was very, 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 very hypersensitive to racism. And it fueled her. It is never my place to even begin to understand what it's like to be brown or black. I'm blue-eyed, blonde, and white. My appearance alone sets me apart from many marginalized populations. That's not lost on me. But she, incredibly, incredibly sensitive to it, more so than many. And is that a bad thing? No, that's her reality. And so where does that come from? Why is one person so sensitive about it and another person isn't? All of this relates back to all of the things that go into trauma. But where does mine come from? Well, I do know that as a young child, the thing I got in trouble with the most was talking. My grades were good. I didn't do bad things, but I was talking all the time. I was very, very used to being full to be quiet. I was born, though, with this people-pleasing attitude. And when you look at the fight, flight, and freeze responses to trauma, two behaviors come out of this. The first is hyper-independence. So hyper-independence to me, as an educator, I've seen young children, young, young children who can use the stove and absolutely completely take care of themselves and at young, young ages because they live on their own. They're neglected. Their parents are just absent. They learn to take care of themselves. That's one, one side of it. And the other side is people, please. And that would be me. Lay yourself down, decimate yourself, give it all away. As long as everyone else is happy, everything's okay. And, and you know, I look at Molly's, I think my goal is purpose is to make people happy. Does that make you happy? And part of me is so touched by it that Molly wanted to be happy. But I wonder, had she not died, would she have followed a similar path to me where she was willing to forego her own happiness to make sure others were happy? I, I don't know. Molly could be pretty stubborn, but I look at it. I look now at what I'm like passing on to my children because of my trauma. So back to my family. So the generation ahead of me, my mother, her sisters, were all sexually abused by the same person. So you have this level of abuse and their abuser was never held accountable ever. It was just, they all knew about it and they all just didn't say anything. I don't, I don't really know the, the details of it. All I know is he is still talked about and still talked about in positive ways. And I know that he had positive aspects to him, but it's bizarre to me. And what I inherited from that is continued protection of my abuser. Do I feel good about it? I don't know. I haven't had a lot of role models in my family in terms of, of just being honest and dealing with it. It's been difficult for me. It has taught me that it's my job to protect everybody and keep the peace and make sure everything is okay. And I believe that that was my mother's job and her sister's job, all of them. Her mother was also abused by this person. And she had some terrible, terrible physical and emotional side effects from this as, as a youngster. The generation ahead of her, so that would be my great-grandparents, my great-grandmother, and my great-great-aunts. Members of that family spent a bunch of time in an orphanage in Concord that was called the Rolf and Rumpert home. It doesn't exist anymore. 
their family was poor and they got put in an orphanage for several years and then and then taken back out and brought back home. Like, And my family on my mother's side has been in Concord for several generations. It's one traumatic woman after another giving birth to babies that they aren't really ready to raise. Was my great-grandmother a good mother to my grandmother? In some ways, I think so, but I think in some ways, no. I don't think she felt protected by her mother. Her father was abusing her. How can you feel protected that way? He has children. My mother goes to live with her abuser. (laughs) And so now she's being abused, as are her siblings, by the same person that abused her mother. Then my mother creates a family situation where her daughter gets abused. So is it my mother's fault? No, it's not that black and white, but I do believe in my mother's growing of me and in all of her concerns about being a good mother and not wanting to repeat what had happened to her. I think what gets transmitted is fear and anxiety and the desire to make everything okay. I was definitely born needing to please people. Now I look at my siblings. I look at my brother, Rick, my brother, Jonathan, my sister, Johanna. I think Johanna is also an unbelievable people pleaser. I don't know that Jonathan and Rick fit into that. Let me just say they're wonderful people and they, they want others to be happy. But I just think in my generation, you know, boomer Gen X, male and female roles were much more defined and much more difficult to cross. It wasn't until I was in, in late elementary and middle school that mother started to work. My mother started to work. She was the only working mother in my neighborhood. When I look at myself and I remember in all my therapy, I was never going to have kids, never. Oh, thank you. It's not going to have kids because I didn't see that I could prevent it. If my mother couldn't stop it, if my grandmother couldn't stop it, if my great-grandmother couldn't stop it, why on earth did I think I could stop it? And so I was just determined never to have kids. And I held on to that for quite a long time. And it wasn't until I met Kenny and saw what an unbelievably good father he was, safe, kind, non-abusive, horrified by people that hurt their children. It wasn't until then, and then getting pregnant, not knowing I was pregnant until I was, you know, well into growing baby Gordy and going through that whole thing, I really likely wouldn't have had children. I'm not even sure I would have had them with Kenny had we not inadvertently created baby Gordy and not known about it. You know, by the time I knew I was pregnant, I was way too far in to do anything about it. Not that I would have done anything about it. I think I would have carried on with the pregnancy just as I did. So having children with Kenny, I knew that I wasn't bringing them into a family with a sexual abuser or access to somebody that was sexually abused. I remember telling Kenny very, very clearly that I wanted no secrets, that he and I couldn't keep secrets with the kids. Don't tell mommy, don't tell daddy. Those things, even when they're minor, you know, a good example is not wearing seatbelts. Well, don't tell your mother I let you not wear your seatbelt. Okay, now you're enlisting your child to keep it secret. I have to say, and looking back at my abuse, secret keeping was probably the most damaging thing. I mean, the sexual abuse was obviously damaging, but I had parents, each of whom were including me in their big secret keeping. And it was my job, not only to keep the secrets, but to keep it straight, who was supposed to know what. So my paternity was a secret when I found that out. When my mother and I would spend time with Tom, I was not to tell my father or anyone that that's where we were that day. I was just with my mother, not with the three. And that was just difficult. Tom bought a lot of school clothes for us. He would give my mother money for school clothes. And I remember taking clothes home and having to hide them and just wear them a bit by bit because we didn't have a lot of money. And my mother wouldn't be able to explain away the clothing. And my father would get angry. We don't have money. We can't afford it. That sort of thing. And then, of course, my father with, you know, a lot of his at-home drinking and those kinds of things. And then my abuser saying, don't tell, don't tell. I had parents and caregivers all telling me to keep things secret. 
So who, who am I not supposed to tell what to? You know, it was incredibly confusing for me. I remember when I first went to AA to deal with alcohol abuse, I got the most help with honesty because you have to be honest with yourself. And I remember after eight or nine months of sobriety and really, really being involved in AA, I could finally just be truthful. Not that I was this compulsive liar all the time, but there were times when I would make up a story or an excuse or something because I felt like the truth wasn't worthy. So if I was late, I better have a really good reason why I was late. So I, I would embellish something. I don't know that I ever just outright lied to people. I have been accused of it. And I have to say that I believe that intergenerational trauma is a huge piece of my reality. And in my having Gracie and Molly, what I wanted for them was a happy life. And, you know, for about 10 years, they got a happy life. And then it all just began to unravel. None of it was sexual abuse. But when I look at my behavior and my responses to the people in my life and the people I was putting ahead of Gracie and Molly and Kenny and me, I realized how much I was playing into trauma-directed behavior. So how intergenerational trauma affects families. So for me, it set the tone for how we treat each other. So let me also say that of the two father figures in my life, one was an OBGYN away all the time. And him raising his kids, he lived the expected life. He lived in a suburb of Concord that's a bit wealthy. He was a doctor, so he worked all the time. His wife did volunteering and was a, an active volunteer in the community. And he raised his children. And they went to private school. Like He fit right into everything that should, should happen for that era of time, the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. My family, I believe my dad grew up being waited on hand and foot by his parents. He didn't do housework. He didn't do all that. However, he had incredible pressure. Better be a good athlete. Better do what he was told. He was not treated well, I have to say. But he did not grow up thinking that he had to take an active role in running a household. His jobs were his jobs. My mother's were hers. And those roles were separate. So his treatment of my mother wasn't always very good. I don't know how my grandfather, Grampy Higgins, treated Grammy Higgins, but I do know that that Grammy felt it was her job and my job and my mother's job to wait on my father and my older brother and Grampy, that that's what we were supposed to do. And I just think those attitudes are pervasive and they, they dictate how I was supposed to feel about myself. I saw a, a meme on social media the other day. A friend of mine, Elliot, posted it. And it basically talked about how liberals, well, oh, you can't love anyone else until you love yourself. And, and I wasn't sure what that had to do with liberal politics, but it is a mindset in a lot of liberal views on relationships and how we should get along as a society. And, and it is very true. I had the number of people that have told me, until you love yourself, you can't love others. But we don't, where do you learn to love yourself? You know, when I look at what I was taught about love, love for me was a list of rules that you followed. Love did not mean good things would, would happen and bad things would not. I was told I was loved and then had terrible things done to me. I came out of that forget about loving myself, love in general, what does that even mean? And it was an interesting, interesting concept. Trauma responses can be rooted to past experiences. So I talked about flight, fright, or freeze. So basically, so my children could potentially exhibit behaviors that would be similar to mine from being sexually abused, even though they weren't even alive when I was sexually abused or born yet, and they hadn't been sexually abused. So the root of our triggers can be as much or if not more about the past and the present. Myself as a small child and that compulsive desire to please everybody was rooted in my mother's traumas. And I think in her life, the way that you avoided things was to just do what you're told. So who does it affect? So as I said before, 
more often than not, it affects marginalized groups in our population. I look at women as marginalized groups. The only, really the only group on the planet that hasn't been bigoted against or marginalized are, are white males. Every other group in the world, including women, has been marginalized. And so I do think sometimes, and because we grow the babies, our trauma is so much more directly related to our children. So we inherit pain. When it's not coped with, it gets passed again. So a woman named Marissa Nathan Gerson, she wrote a book called Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, says this, and it really does make sense to me. And I know that I tried very hard to deal with my abuse. I went for therapy. As an adult, I confronted my abuser and talked about how much it really ruined my life and affected me still. And that was when I was in my early 20s. So I had taken steps that my mother never took and that I'm sure my grandmother never took or my great-grandmother. So these things, I felt like I had a step in the right direction. And when I look at Gracie, now Gracie's had this horrible traumatic event, right? We have enough trauma in our life <laughs> that you know, who knows how she'll end up responding or what she'll pass on to her kids. Having said that, having a voice, getting therapy and dealing with the trauma will mitigate what you pass on. So then there's a world called epigenetics and it's the biological mechanisms of intergenerational trauma. So the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes in the way your genes work. So genetics is fascinating because as we change behaviors with every passing generation, genetics change and the next generation picks up things. So a really quick, easy example is Jack. So we're all on our cell phones, right? And so we scroll and we look at them and everything else. And from a very young age, the minute he could get a cell phone in his hand, if you're watching me, he would take his finger and try to scroll the glass. Now, granted, he was watching us, but this is a movement that's a very specific movement. He just gets it right away. And each generation seems to have a better understanding of technology than the generation prior. So where are they learning this? You know, I do believe human beings evolved to adapt to their environment and that changes happen that don't seem to be connected and that's epigenetics. So what did my trauma do to my DNA to alter it so that when I pass it on to babies that grow in my belly, they have the altered DNA? There's other ways in utero. So if you're pregnant and you're stressed the whole time you're pregnant, you're giving birth to a baby that's lived in a very stressful environment. Memories, memories come up. So those can affect conversations. Cultural messages and conditioning. Women should be quiet. Women should cover their bodies. Men should earn all the money. You know, whatever the cultural messages are around who we are. Cumulative emotional wounding. So when one trauma compounds another, compounds another. So I would look at my mother who never really recovered from her own sexual abuse. And then she now realizes her daughter was sexually abused. And then this daughter now loses a child. And so she's got these compound emotions that continue that could, that weren't she still having children could potentially affect other generations. Parents bypassing and not coping with trauma. So that would be big in my family. And then aggressions and microaggressions. Families can become very disconnected. They can become very detached. What I know of my parents' relationship and my mother's relationship with just men in her life, very, very willing to acquiesce her own personal happiness to find safety, perceived safety, and the happiness of those people around her. And I watched that. Learned pretty early on that this was just the reality of life. Self-esteem can be affected in families. And as an educator, when I look at how people raise their children and the things their children believe, it really is a reaction. The pendulum goes back and forth. You know, you have a child that's raised really, really strictly. And so they give their children all the leeway in the world. And those children turn around and raise their children really strictly. We tend to raise our children based on what we think we didn't get. 
you know, we give them names that we like and then our children hate the names we chose for them, just like we hate our names. You know, sometimes it's just a pendulum back and forth of what we do. But I know that my mother always just wanted to be a good mother. And in many, many ways, she was a wonderful mother. I was never hungry. I knew she loved me. I knew she did the best she could. I didn't always know that. But there were many things that she could have done differently to better herself that would have made her a better mother. And then oftentimes, like in my family, the abuse continues. In her setting up her family, she was attracted to yet another abuser who abused me. So all of these things continue. I know for me, I was not going to connect myself with anyone abusive at all. And I have relationships in my past that red flags would go off on how they treated their children or other people's children or their attitudes around kindness and that sort of thing. And there can be neglect, abuse, estrangement. All of these things happen and all of them happened in my life. And then the other thing is grief. So grieving, it's interesting. I'm taking the grieving class right now. And we always think of grief following the death of someone. But grief is following the death of anything. If you lose something, anything you lose can be representative of a death. You lose a job. So your relationship with that job has died. The job no longer exists for you. Trauma and abuse and neglect and violence and all of the things that can set in motion these, these side effects, fight, flight, or freeze, can oftentimes just evidence themselves in behaviors that get passed along. We are told to stop grieving, that continued grieving is a negative thing. Prolonged grief disorder or complicated grief is now mental illness, which I think means doctors can give you medicine for it and insurance will cover it. But why I have to be called mentally ill because I have a dead child and I'm still sad six and a half years later speaks volumes to how we look at the brain. So trauma and stress can increase the chance of chronic pain. And I have chronic pain. I have this trigeminal neuralgia. It was sort of an eye-opening revelation to me that I developed this shortly after I lost my job. I was in this horrible, stressful place. My family situation was horrible. I was in a relationship that was unbelievably bad, although I didn't know how bad at the time. I didn't have a job. I was publicly humiliated, all of it. And I developed this nerve condition in my head. Poor sleep, substance abuse and use disorders, anxiety, depression and suicidal ideations. These are all things that can come from experience in trauma, but also that we can pass along to children if we pass along the effects of our own trauma. This puts, again, a lot of pressure on the victim, doesn't it? I'm sitting here listening to all the things I need to make sure I do so I don't now turn around and pass on bad things to my children. It's, it's an incredible, incredible burden for the victimized and the traumatized, not only better themselves, but to make sure that they're bettering their children. Some of the ones that, that are big for me, so I don't know if I had not also been sexually abused if I would have had these issues, but I do know that I, more than my sister, was prime target for predators. And that has remained true all of my life. I walk around with a lot of shame and a heightened sense of awareness, hypervigilance. I have intrusive thoughts. My abuse thoughts come into my head. I would say every day of my whole life, at least once, the thought goes through my head. I don't ask for it to come. I don't I don't go back and try to think about it, but it's there all the time. I remember driving to the beach when Gracie and Molly were about a year before Molly died and telling them that I had been a victim of child abuse. I didn't say who it was and I didn't give a lot of details, but I talked about being sexually abused. And they were they were just open and curious to it. It's something that they'd heard about. You know, when I was their age, I didn't even know that that was a thing. So I just wanted them to always be aware and cognizant and have the guts to say no if somebody was asking them to do something they didn't want to do. Difficulty with relationships and attachment to others. So I have issues with boundaries. Always have. I make myself at home in other people's houses. That was me as a little kid. 
but I let people stomp all over my boundaries. And I have a hard time in certain situations honoring the boundaries of others. It's not something I do on purpose either. You know, I look back to that young student, well, the high school student in Bo that had lost a parent. I went out of my way to help this child and high school student and accused of crossing boundaries and acting inappropriately. And nothing I did was inappropriate behavior, but it offended the family of this girl. And and that's a boundary issue. My friend Deb will often correct me. Okay, now think about boundaries. If I start to get too attached to somebody or too wrapped up in a situation, she's my little yellow light, which is super helpful. Sometimes it makes me cranky, but when I take a breath and look back, I realize that she's right. Healing intergenerational trauma. So this is where I guess that I am. And that I also was 20 years ago when I, 30 years ago, (laughs) 30 years ago, when I had my psychiatrist in Newton, Norman, Dr. Norman was unbelievably helpful in getting me to acknowledge that by addressing it, addressing it with my mother and father, addressing the secrets that I was made to keep by each of them and by my abuser, that I would break the cycle, that I wouldn't raise children that would be likely to find abuse because I'm taking care of all the things that play into it. My mother never had the chance to take care of these things. She never got to learn that she had a voice. She never got to learn that it wasn't her job to maintain peace and and vigilance and that she had to keep silent. She never had that therapy and that help. She was easy prey, just like I was. So it's important to know that healing intergenerational trauma often looks different for everyone. Well, this is just the truth. Everything is different for everyone. What, What I like for dinner isn't what you like for dinner. It's illogical to think there's one way to do it. But there are different therapies that can help help people. And basically, an honest, open family history and judgment-free conversations around all that's happened is a start. I know people that have had such crappy childhoods, they don't remember. They just don't remember. It doesn't exist to them. And then I know others who remember every bit of their crappy childhood. So, you know, sometimes our own coping mechanisms are what works for us and what helps us to be okay. So certain types of therapy that are effective. So there's psychoanalysis, and that's what was helpful for me. The medical side of therapy for me, I've gone to therapists and counselors and social workers, and talk therapy is talk therapy, but I will tell you right now, psychiatrists who have to go to medical school and use the brain and neurological understanding as a basis for dealing with mental health are far more effective for me because off the table is my being told I should just control my behavior. Well, if you didn't get so mad, okay, well, I don't mean to get so mad. You know, like that piece of it, I've learned so much about the brain and how our brain reacts and protects us in traumatic situations. So psychoanalysis would be that, going for therapy with a psychiatrist, somebody that's gone to medical school. They can also prescribe medications. My psychiatric nurse practitioner was an amazing person to talk to, Steve. He had such a keen understanding of brain function around its reactions to stress and trauma. So EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. This is, instead of working from the inside out, it's working from the outside in. So you move your body, you alternate, you tap on your knees, you cover one eye and you watch something go back and forth. You do these external movements as you recreate a feeling, as you re-experience a feeling that comes from your trauma. You're not reliving the trauma. You're reliving the effect of the trauma. So an example that EMDR helped for me was driving by Concord Hospital. I've given this before. I couldn't drive by the hospital without completely losing it, swearing and yelling and crying and hyperventilating. So I would drive six extra miles if I had to go that direction. In the office, I had one eye covered and she was waving like an antenna back and forth and I was watching it with my eye. And she just asked me questions. 
So when you drive by the hospital, how are you feeling? Where do you feel that feeling? Where is it in your body? Describe it. And then we would stop and we would reground. Here I am in the office. This feeling hasn't caused my death. I'm okay. And then you, you go back and you reprogram yourself to disconnect the traumatic reaction from whatever's causing it. You can't undo. I can't undo being molested. I can never unmolest myself. All I can do is work as hard as I can to mitigate the reactions of that trauma and to try to heal from those as best I can. Somatic therapy. So this is a huge interest for me right now. Trauma lives in the body. A somatic or body-centered approach to coping with trauma may not only help you become aware of your body, but can also reprogram your nervous system. So I immediately go to exercise, but yoga, I think sometimes therapeutic massage, dance, as you move your body in connection with how you're feeling. I know for me, a huge savior for me in my life was running. Now I went to somatic therapy early on when I was being abused. I wanted to stay busy. So I joined things like choir and I took violin and Girl Scouts, but I also joined swim team and I loved it. I loved working out. I loved being out of breath. I liked the change in my body. And then I went to Nordic skiing and I loved cross-country skiing. And then I went to gymnastics and dance. And then I found running and running was the be all and the end all for me. It was the one time I truly felt amazingly good inside my body. Internal family systems. So therapists trained in family therapy. You look at your whole self and how you are both your whole self and a part of the dynamic of your family. We all are very quick to accept roles. And in my family, I'm the fixer. I, you know, well, let's ask Barbara what she thinks. That's so now because I'm just, I now have the, the voice to say, I have enough on my own plate. Stop asking me to help. And maybe my family is the worst place for me to do this, but really learning to say no has been important and helpful in my own therapy. Looking at family structure and then consciously creating your own family structure. So Gracie and Molly never had a list of chores. If their room would be a disaster, I would have them go clean it. They had busy schedules. They were in school all day. Then they had theater and dance, competitions on the weekends. And so I just wanted their schoolwork to be done and for them to be rested and to have a social life. So they didn't have a list of chores they had to accomplish before they could go do anything. Gracie is a bit of a slow She doesn't really get up after herself much. And a lot of that is just executive functioning. She hasn't had the repetition to do it. So maybe that was a mistake on my part. When Molly died, of course, everything blew up and we stopped doing anything. A huge trauma response. So maybe some internal family systems would be good, good for me. It makes me think about how I will raise Jack. Prolonged exposure therapy, often used for PTSD. Prolonged exposure therapy involves confronting the source of your fear to reduce anxiety around it. This is often used for OCD, people that can't leave the house, you know, agoraphobics, and also any sort of phobia. So look at a spider, spend 10 minutes looking at a spider so that you can at least get to the point that a small spider won't cause you to run out of your house. I'm not sure that exposing a child to their abuser <laughs> would make sense in this situation. But I think like EMDR, we look at the things that trigger our responses and we increase our exposure to those things so that we can differentiate an actual fear from a perceived fear. And then cognitive processing therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. This is super, super good. This has been really helpful with Gracie. So it, it's less about how you feel, actual concrete things you can do in a moment of panic or terror or sadness to feel better. And this really was helpful for Gracie getting through high school. You know, she would ask to sit near a window so she could look out the window and not feel swallowed in. At the same time, she wants to be in the front row so she could be near the door. You know, she had all these just little different tasks and things that she could do to alleviate and mitigate fear. There's a lot of different books and things to do. And when I look at myself, I am right now reading and reading and reading, and I'm rereading The Body Keeps the Score. 
because it is full of all of this sort of information and how the events in our lives affect us and how they affect how we treat other people. And like, I look at a lot of Gracie's and Molly's little friends who are now, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. And I look at what I know about their upbringing and what their life was like and how they are now. The more I read, the more examples I see of so many things, good and bad, around how our own selves affect our children. Listen, this is human nature in life. The other side of stress and trauma is it's the only thing that causes growth. Muscles don't get big by sitting around. You have to go to the gym and stress them out and build it, work hard and all this. So sometimes stress is a necessary thing. The process of a rock becoming a diamond isn't easy. <laughs> that rock is under a lot of stress before it's a beautiful diamond. And so there's a book written by Mark Wolin called It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And he says, remaining silent about family pain is rarely an effective strategy for healing it. The suffering will surface again at a later time, often expressing in the fears or symptoms of a later generation. I have a lot of people who tell me I'm too honest. Why do you talk about these things? Well, because they're in my head and carrying these things around is unhealthy. And I also know that the response I've gotten from this podcast supports the fact that not just me, my story isn't unique or different or better or worse than anyone else's. It's just my story. But I believe that we all have a story and that all of our stories have something that's negative. The biggest thing in terms of ending family intergenerational trauma is communication. Isn't that great? Communication. <laughs> Talking with one another, right? Telling the stories, hearing the stories, not judging the stories, not listening to people who say horrible things about other people to protect themselves. The tricky part of all of this is that pretty much any adverse reaction, something negative done to somebody, was done by a person, a perpetrator. And sometimes these people stand to lose a lot if the process of trauma is revealed and that the side effects dealt with. There are people who want things kept secret. And this is a huge burden, a very, very big burden for a lot of people. I will sort of wrap it up. I know this was a bit of a lesson. I've done episodes like this before and this wasn't so much of a story time. But I do know that for me, in my process, I knew when I was in college and contemplating returning to Concord, I was never going to come home. And I ended up, of course, coming home. But I do know that a major motivator for me to get therapy in my early 20s was I didn't like my erratic behavior. I didn't like my addiction to alcohol. And I knew that I was just going to continue. If I were to ever have a family, it would be a bad thing. So I made this decision to never have kids. Of course, I was in my 20s and I wasn't dating anyone I was considering marrying. So it really was moot. I know that when I married my first husband, Eric, that was a very, very compulsive thing. I, it was all based in my religion. And I thought he's a Baha'i, so he has to be a good person. And he was a good person. <laughs> but a very clear example of the type of person a traumatized person like me might marry. There were lots and lots of things about Eric that weren't okay. And that weren't okay for me. And his history with prior relationships and wives indicated a far bigger problem than me. So that ended and we never had children. And that's a huge, huge relief. And then I met Kenny. And so in the process of meeting Kenny and really talking about children, I remember very, very distinctly talking with Kenny about how we'll speak to our children and how we'll, we will be with them so that they grow up secure in our love for them, but also capable and able to care for themselves outside the house and all of that. And aside from you know my job loss and my interaction with the people surrounding that and then Molly's death, we did a very good job on that. And even after, even after Molly's death, coping with, with what do we do now, remaining as a family unit, even though 
Kenny and I really are just roommates and friends. We don't have a husband and wife relationship. And I don't know that we ever will. We have an incredible relationship that works because we have common interests, Gracie and Jack. And then there's Jack. You know, Gracie will have her own work to do on how does she honor Molly, but not bring the trauma of that loss into her parenting or bring it in a negative way. And then we have Jack. And Jack is the phoenix in the ashes. You know, he, he comes from brain tumor discoveries and kidney transplant necessities and Ed Molly. And here's this beautiful baby. And, and, you know, that could be a lot of pressure on a baby. I want Jack to be a happy, healthy, important member of society. I want him to be a kind human being and I want him to be happy. Does that mean he won't have trauma and grief in his life? No, <laughs> he's my child. He's probably doomed. And anyway, generational trauma, generational trauma, it's a buzzword now, and it explains so much of how I ended up where I am. And forget a lot of the details of my life. When I look at my later adult life, and this all leads into season seven, you know, I look at all of my actions from elementary school to middle school to high school to college to my 20s to moving back home to my first marriage to Kenny to Roy to my relationship with Robin. As I went along and got older, I really seemed to find much more extreme versions of people that I should be avoiding. And I don't quite understand where that comes from. I had an amazing therapist all through my adult life, Judy. Started going to her before I married Eric. And then we had a bit of a break and then she returned to the area and I started seeing her again all around getting together with Kenny. And then when Kenny and I were married, I stopped going, things were good. And then suddenly things weren't good and I was back in therapy again. And you know, if she's somebody, maybe I'll give her a call and ask her some questions because she was incredibly helpful for me as well. Again, she was a therapist, a sex therapist, but she was married to a psychiatrist. And so she she brought a lot of psychiatry and medical knowledge into her treatment. Barbara Higgins, survivor of sexual abuse, child loss, job loss, social status loss, brain tumors, illnesses, you name it. I've been through it. I hope I can do is connect the dots for myself to make sense of dead Molly and to open up conversation. So I want to thank you for listening. I want to encourage you to do something good for yourself. And once you've done that, do something good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.